Okay, welcome along. Uh, this is the Unicorn Farm. Uh, we're in a slightly noisy uh, Coogee Bay Hotel with Adrian Cockroft. So, welcome along, Adrian. Hi there. Uh, first, this isn't your first visit to Australia, is it? No, I've been a bunch of times the last 20 years. Got a few okay. relatives out here. I visited in '95, and I was at the same conference two years ago. Okay. So, um, just I'm trying went to pick to your accent. Where are you from? Originally from England. Okay. 20 years living in America messes with your accent. Um, I tend to pick up accents, and I've been in Australia for two weeks now. All oh, so right, so you're about I to think start. I'm confused. Well, a few beers in you, I'm sound. no idea what my accent's doing. <laughs> and, and what took you from England to the US? Um, well, I was working for Sun Microsystems in the UK in the late '80s, and in the early '90s, oh, the I got yeah, pretty much. And then early '90s, got an opportunity to move to the US to be in the central field of technical support. Okay. Um, Still with Sun? Technical marketing with Sun, yeah. So I was in the central systems engineering support right. team, effectively, technical marketing. So I wrote papers, uh, performance tuning books, organized the training for the field systems engineers worldwide right. for certain topics. And some of those people are actually those people that work at AWS now. Oh, wow. If you know, Konstantin Gonzalez so in, like, uh, in Germany. He's right, an old so friend of mine who's ah, in the gotcha. AWS. He's a... One of the old Sun SE team that used to come and do all of those training things. Fantastic. So is it like the you know the, the PayPal mafia around the tech startup world? There's a there's, there's Sun definitely a, mafia? A, an ex a Sun diaspora, I think, more than a mafia. Um, there's a whole lot of Sun people running around. Um, stuff I did then, I was right, I wrote this book on Sun performance tuning that lots of people used. It's okay. kind of Solaris tuning guide. Um, now you kind of find somebody's VP engineering or CIO, some big company says, well, back in the day, in the 90s, when I was a Solaris sysadmin, that w was helpful. So I get kind of people coming back at me that right. remember what I did 15, 20 years ago. Wow. So that was my first sort of US career. Um, moved in sideways into the performance team, uh, ended up as the chief architect of high-performance computing, okay. as distinguished engineer. Um, spent a lot of time with capacity planning, monitoring, it's a pretty tooling. cool title, Distinguished Just, Engineer. Yeah, the DEs uh, all get together twice a year, well, they used to, and anointed a new applicant as a DE. <laughs> you're, you're supposed to be anonymously proposed in case they didn't like you so you wouldn't get grumpy, but in practice, people... And was there a weird initiation ceremony that you had Not to do? Not really. No. no, you just had to hang out with the other DEs. Some of right. them are weird. <laughs> <laughs> but there were some very cool people there that I sort of vaguely know, right. uh, that I wouldn't otherwise know. Like Dick Gabriel, who's here for this conference, was a DE at Sun. Um, and um, I'd be like Radia Perlman, who invented spanning trees, and right. uh, the people that invented Java and Spark Chips and uh, James Gosling. And, yeah. You know, and we still do DEs. Like we've got, is it James Hamilton? Is he our DE? James Hamilton yeah. is effect, yeah, similar to a DE. I'm not quite sure. I think Amazon does it a little differently. You don't quite have James's hairstyle, Adrian. I do not have as much hair left as James. <laughs> James is doing very well. I know him quite well. Yeah, he was out in Sydney last year and came along to yeah. a Christmas party. A great guy. Yeah, he's been travelling the world in his boat. Yeah. So is that is that next track. for you? Are you going to buy a boat and no. join him? No. No, I like people who... I have friends who have boats, which yeah. is the best option. You just <laughs> go, hey, do you want to go sailing next week? And go, yeah. You just go and hang out in the boat, yeah. and then they have all the expense and uh, looking after the boat. And 
I know enough people with boats that I yeah. can. I like going in boats, but I don't want to own my own one. So, so jumping back to your career, so so mid '90s, still at Sun, the internet's just coming along. What, yeah, what was happening I was then? in the performance tuning team, and one of the first things people tried doing was running internet servers on large multi-core servers, and it didn't scale. It ran like complete crap, actually. Um, you put it on a one processor machine it worked you put it on an eight processor machine and it ran slower than on the one processor right. machine so I was involved in some of the um, benchmarking and fixing involved to get the first web servers to work at any speed at all yep. I was on the internet browsing around in I don't know 94, 95 which is pretty early yeah, that is. I won the Brat web anyway I had email on the internet I was on Usenet back in the 80s so I go back quite a long way in internet footprint so um, when you think back then, did, yeah. did, did, did you or anyone really have an inkling as to how world-changing the internet was going to be? Um, I don't know if we figured out how per- that it would get this pervasive, but it was mostly just people were trying to deal with it. You know, there were, web, there were TV stations like CBS who created a thing called Sports Zone, and that was one of the first big websites trying to do anything on the internet that had sports yeah. scores and they were running on Sun so I'd go and get involved and help tune them up and things like that so I'd be I got involved I was helping run the Sun website which at one point was the, one of the top 10 websites in the world and it was just a static content site yeah. it's just that there, no one else had got started at that point um, but it was running on a crappy little one megabit line yeah. <laughs> we snuck in there so I, I spent some time helping people out with the, the web stuff and big databases and scalability. Ended up, uh, Sun eventually laid off a whole division that I was in, and in 04, and I went to eBay, because so I'd helped out eBay a bit, I knew some yeah. people there, so I wanted to move from the enterprise side to the end so consumer when side. did Oracle get involved? Because they bought Sun, didn't they? They bought Sun a few years later, after, after I thought, that, right, I okay. forget, 07 or 08 or something. Right. I can't so remember. sorry, and then about you, you. Yeah, moved so I, to I moved. I spent a couple of years at eBay, worked in operations architecture, and then the research lab. Right. Helped was a founding member of the research lab there, but did some mobile stuff, some capacity planning, yeah. some. Because a lot of the challenge around then was around scalability, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, they'd figured out scalability, and I got deeply into their processes to understand how they scaled and what they'd learned and what was working and what wasn't working. Yeah. Then when then Netflix in 07 was launching streaming and realized they had to scale rapidly and they started recruiting talent particularly from eBay yeah. so there's a whole handful of people senior people from eBay that moved to, yeah. to Netflix at that time um, some of them still there some of them moved on I, I was there and helped run the homepage and some personalization algorithms and ran a team for a while this uh, is a Netflix now? Yeah, well, that's yeah. what I was doing uh, the first few years at Netflix, and then we moved that to AWS. I was I took the personalization architecture, which is the core architecture that most of the development was done around, and led the team that moved that to AWS yeah. and rearchitected everything to move away from this monolith to microservices, from a big Oracle backend to lots of small databases, and. Um, just all of the different transitions at once. Yeah. That so was in so I do want to get into that, but I'm just still curious because I wasn't really, in, I mean, I was um, playing around in the web at the time, but mm-hmm. scalability, unfortunately, wasn't the problem I was dealing with. Yeah. Just trying to sell a product. But so back in 04 when you were at eBay, I mean, how did you approach scalability? What, what, did, what did you have to do to build a scalable website back then? Um, 
eBay was one of the first. In fact, if you look at most architectures now, they trace back to a lot of the work done at eBay then that they were talking about. So they had basically figured out how to shard their backend. So they had lots of Oracle databases, yeah. um, each of which had a single table or a single view. And they were cross-connecting all these databases instead of having one big database. So that was the key thing that nowadays that's the way everybody uses sort of NoSQL. So they basically turned Oracle into what would you'd now see, look, see as a NoSQL um, so, I mean, that usage like, case. Like, like a hack. And was it a bit of a... Cause it was a very unusual use case for Oracle. Right. Instead of one big schema, they really just had one index table and then they were hitting it very hard and they had tens of databases. So they take the user database and they had a thing which would tell you which Oracle database this user was located on and it would redirect you to the right place. Wow. And they had 20 different databases, shards for a user and... For a while, they had a database for each category, but then eventually ended up sharding across categories for all the items. So you must have been a huge Oracle customer. Yeah, eBay was a huge Oracle customer, and so was Netflix as well. It was a big customer. But right. Netflix was, at that time, was on a single monolithic database. Right. So we had to split up the back end. Um, we spl the front end was basically stateless. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, Randy Shoup, who was at the conference, was talking about the eBay front end, and it was at that time it was several million lines of C++ built into a single DLL that was loaded into a Windows to run the eBay front end. Wow! So if that went down a crash, then there was trouble. Well, there were lots of them. Right. Okay. Uh, they would continuously reboot them to get through <laughs> memory leaks. Um, yeah, so I learned a lot there. They were a two-week uh, release cycle yeah. SaaS provider yeah. with scale, global access. PayPal was also interesting as part of the company. Yeah. Skype was also part of the company at that time. They bought Skype while I was there. So I spent some time working with Skype. Yeah. Um, lots of interesting stuff. Did some research projects that were you know interesting in various ways. But I figured out that it, adding a research group to a company doesn't work that well because you end up with an us and them kind of attitude yeah. uh, and everyone else goes well aren't we allowed to innovate what's what are you supposed to do so Netflix is that uh, everyone innovates all the time yeah and it was a much smaller company I was given much more access to management like at eBay it was sort of a protocol violation to skip a couple of levels to do a <laughs> right. talk to your some management person you know and I I knew some of them, but it was kind of just very constraining, hierarchical view yeah. of management. Netflix was, let's have a one-on-one -on -one with the CEO when you join, and every quarter afterwards. <laughs> um, so how many staff were at Netflix when you came on? About 350 full-time employees when I joined. They're up to about somewhere between one and 2,000 now. And in terms of customers, I think I read there's 60 million now? There's about 70 million now. Uh, at the time I joined, there were 6 million DVD and nobody streaming. Right. Um, the peak DVD, I think, was about 12 million, then it went down. There's now about 5 million DVD, and they have 70 million-ish streaming right now. Right, um, so, <coughs> so again, this that whole streaming thing, every streaming customer uses, you know, order of magnitude a thousand times more capacity than a... DVD customer. Right. Like, so if you visit and you click one every, once a week, you sort of click something and go, okay, this is the order of the movies I want, and then you just return movies, yeah. DVDs, and you get new ones. 
whereas streaming, you're browsing around and then it's doing continuous API calls to monitor and track what you're doing and, and all this stuff. So the way I think about it is when a tenth of a percent of the customer base was streaming, yeah. it was 50-50 data center capacity right. Uh, if it's a thousand to one. So, and, you know, it was pretty rapidly a few percent of this customer base was streaming and it was totally dominating the capacity demands of the site. Yeah. Right. So that, when you think about it in those terms, you realize that there was sort of, a, we had a nice growth plan for DVD and it was doing fine and then it just exploded. That's when we decided, we had to decide whether to rapidly build lots and lots of data centers or go outside. And that's when the AWS, let's see if we can run on AWS decision was yeah. made, which was in 08. And then in 09, we actually started using it. And in 2010, the whole app, the whole front end moved and the, it became really visible. Yeah. And so, I mean, back then it was just in-browser viewing only, wasn't it? To start with, yeah. Yeah. Um, by 2010, we had Xbox, iPhone, iPad, all those kinds of things. Yeah. So um, was 2009 was when we started to go, you know, there's PS3... We, all of those platforms came online and TV sets started to come online yeah. uh, around 2010, 2011. And you, I mean, were you just focused on the, the architecture side or did you have to get involved in the transcoding and concern about different platforms um, too? So I had two jobs at Netflix. The first one was I was managing a team working on personalization and then managed a slightly larger team that basically was handling that tra the, the transition to cloud for, the, for a big chunk of what Netflix did. Uh, and then we formed a cloud platform team uh, under Yuri Israelevsky. We hired him out of, e we hired a bunch of people out of Yahoo. Yeah. Because Yahoo at the time was losing its good talent, but it still had some talent left. Yeah. While we called Netflix the Yahoo South Campus, because so many Yahoos turned up. Um, so Yuri came from Yahoo, and he was talking to people about how everything worked, and I just whiteboarded the whole architecture to him. Right. Um, and then he said, I need an architect that knows how everything works. Um, you interested? <laughs> um, so I moved sideways to work for Yuri, basically in that role of keeping track and coordinating everything across all the other teams, training them, um, and then writing up the architecture for external, yeah. talking about it externally. Uh, at the time, I'd spent a few years of not really doing any public, much public speaking, but yeah. the time I was at Sun, I was a DE and I'd written a book and I was out on the speaker circuit, so right. I had a lot of experience in training and speaking and evangelism and I'd spent you know, six years in the field as an SE, I knew yeah. customers, so I basically went, oh, I know how to do this, <laughs> fired up my you know, PowerPoint, whatever, um, and went out and started talking about what Netflix was doing. And people, you know, they went, oh, you know how to do this. <laughs> yes, yeah. okay. I hadn't, for several years, I'd kind of it was disappeared unique. off the thing. But I came in and, yeah, I know how to do, I know how to train people. I know how to talk about stuff. Yeah. And I've, I've done, just had a lot of background, which I just dug up my background and went, okay, I can talk about the Netflix architecture yeah. and started engaging with different conferences and um, figuring out basically technically marketing Netflix as a technology and creating a technology brand around Netflix yeah. 
and that was explicitly done with the help of the PR department and, and making everything work. So we, we went out there to say we want Netflix to be a technology brand associated with cloud and pe- we want the cool people to want to come and work at Netflix on that and that worked out very well yeah. in the end. But it didn't just come out of nowhere, it was a conscious yeah, yeah. plan to go do it and I started I mean, getting invites to lots of conferences, started passing on to other people at Netflix and yeah. basically we eventually there were a whole lot of people at Netflix that were good presenters and there's now a whole crowd of people that go everywhere all the world talking about it. You know, I mean, back in 08 when you you made that, you know, AWS cloud decision, I mean, that was out there, wasn't it? Yeah. No one else, I mean, AWS... Yeah, they thought we were crazy. Half the company, half of Netflix thought we were crazy too. Right. We told the crazy people to go play in the data center (laughs) while we figured out the cloud stuff and eventually they all either came across or left. So, and, and talk me through the decision process. You know, so you're sitting there in 07, you've got a few people coming in, you obviously see the rampant yeah. um, usage, and you probably extrapolated a bit further and went, oh my God, we've got a problem that we've got to deal with here. What we went didn't, through your we head d- at that We weren't point? able to predict our capacity needs more than a few weeks in advance at that point. And was that part of the problem that you were trying to solve? Yeah. Right. We needed to be leveraging a much larger pool of resources on an on-demand basis because we didn't know where we had sort of roughly a six month forward plan of where, where we were going to be in terms of product but we didn't know how many customers were going to be signing up right um, we did the Xbox launch I think I'm trying to remember the numbers but just order of magnitude numbers I mean, don't hold me to this but I think at that time we had probably 10 million customers wow. and we figured out that like half of them had Xboxes or something like that some millions and millions of customers had Xboxes and we launched the Xbox and went, we have no idea how fast people are going to adopt it. And Xbox launches were a huge deal at yeah. the time. Everyone would like bunk off work for the day. Yeah. Because uh, they would get the new Xbox and they'd play Halo or whatever it was. Because um, that's sort of So I think we got like half a million new users, like sign ups for this brand new service with a brand new API in the first day or something. And so the chart, we had a few thousand beta users. Yeah. And it just went this vertical line on the chart. over, the, And then we rapidly within a week or so had a few million users using Xboxes and it was one of those things where it was all hands on deck yeah. let's make sure we don't fall over and the capacity we just oversized everything right. and then later on once it, you know, a week or so later once the ingestion had settled down and we had all the customers we went okay that's how much capacity we actually need and we shrunk all of the order scalers okay. back to what um, to a predictable level but when every time we had one of these launches like Nintendo Wii another huge launch yeah. and uh iPhone was another huge launch and every time we did that we would basically you know oversize the system the day before yeah and have a nice idle launch without any panics and failures and things crapping out on us and then rescale it down I don't think we ever had a capacity related launch problem we had a few bugs and things we had to deal with occasionally but generally speaking there are no fail whale stories for Netflix and that is because we were on cloud and we were able to oversize everything yeah. as we needed to incredible metric so I, I, I mean so talk me about the engagement with AWS back then because you know even for AWS that's a uh, meaningful uh, yes. capacity so were they people there I think in 08 what I remember was you know, it was written, written top down to some extent. Reed was basically saying, we don't think we're going to be ever going to be any good at building data centers. And it looks like in the future, people are going to use this public cloud thing. So it just, Netflix is very, 
good at pioneering. There's a pioneering spirit there. That they are not afraid to be the first people to do something. Right. And they have a bunch of engineers that they hire for that attitude. And management is built around that attitude. And if you manage that well, it's an incredible advantage. Um, they end up as the marquee customer for all kinds of people. Yeah. You get great discounts when you do that, particularly with startups who yeah. have little, very little leverage versus yeah. that so they get really really big discounts um, and it's and you get to shape the thing that's being built by the startup and sort of AWS was not really a startup there it was bigger but again Netflix helped shape what AWS did right so the first thing that happened was I think um, I think Reed called you know there was a there was a phone call between Reed and Bezos right Reed Hastings and Jeff Bezos, where they discussed, you know, okay, what is this AWS thing? Yeah. How does it compete? Or, you know, do you have a real Chinese wall between that and Amazon Retail, which yeah. was already a competitor even before Prime Streaming was launched? We saw, um, you know, there was a DVD business on retail, which we, which was a Netflix competitor. Yeah. So there was, and they got comfortable, okay. right? So that was the first step, and then we looked, looked at the click-through license and said this doesn't work because you can turn us off at any time without any reason. Right. So probably not a good thing. And the enterprise license didn't exist. Right. So there was a whole process where we started doing stuff on an engineering side without waiting for that. But the lawyers went off, and the Amazon lawyers and the Netflix lawyers and a few people. I heard later that Channel Four was up at the same time as a. Right. Uh, roughly the same time was going through the same process so some of the early large enterprise like customers sort of beat the enterprise license out of Amazon <laughs> that's kind of the way it felt I think at the time it was like no we need a proper license oh really no we can't do this on click through and a credit card well I bet you were happy that you weren't having to deal with the lawyers well you know, the, the lawyers are there to figure this stuff out so they went and you know I think the the general shape of what is now the enterprise license that everyone has was sort of created yeah. by the first few enterprises that needed to do it and yeah, we were yeah. right there doing that so getting the business relationship right was important yeah and I then I try not to criticize lawyers too much I mean, they're uh, necessary yeah. evil but my, 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 my wife's an ex-lawyer yeah so my wife's an ex-lawyer too yeah so yeah we, they have their retractable sharks fins yeah <laughs> All right, so and, and talk me about through the, the next few years then. So, I mean, you've obviously you, you got it up and running. You've, you've done well, these big yeah, launches. Yeah, well, the first thing we did was stuff that wasn't customer-facing. So we had some Hadoop stuff we were playing around with. We were finding it was a pain in the neck to get Hadoop running in 2009. Okay. It's still a pain for some people, but yeah. in 2009 it was even more of a pain. So we fired that up on EMR, and then we told Amazon, if you change EMR to be this build of EMR and you add you know, of, of Hadoop and you add Hive and the track this you know had some feature set we wanted uh, we'll use it and they went away and they did that and so Netflix became one of the first big users of EMR yeah and has never started up a Hadoop cluster other than that right. since as far as I can tell um, so that was that was one of the early use cases and that was processing the quality of service logs coming back out of the streaming system yeah. to make sure that everybody was getting you know measuring rebuffers and what bitrate everyone was at and all that kind of stuff yeah. um, and then the encoding system we ran out of space in our data center for encoding and every time we did an Xbox launch we had to do a new encoding type uh, Nintendo Wii was yet another different encode so you have to go through the entire catalog and re-encode everything and then we do a deal with a studio and we'd have a compiler of content come in and we have to encode that for all these different platforms yeah. so that ended up with a 10,000 node account yeah. very early on probably 2010 I think that count hit 10,000 nodes 
Um, and at one point we said, wonder how many we can get in one go, and we grabbed 3,000 nodes in an hour, 3,000 instances, and that was the first you know, little hardware benchmarking tests wow. to see what happens if so, you set so the order scaler all your, that big. All of your transcoding was, was in the cloud? Yeah. Well, that initially was it wasn't, but that, yeah, that was in early years. So that was 09, started doing it wow. then. In fact, they just did a blog post this week on what the, how the current transcoding architecture right. is actually. There's a very detailed blog post on the Netflix tech blog. So yeah. Techblog.netflix.com, lots of details. So. Yeah. so we did that, and then, the, then we were figuring out the architecture for how we were going to do the sort of microservices, NoSQL, whatever. We started using uh, SimpleDB, which we blew up by way, way overdriving it. Yeah. beyond its capacity then we switched to Cassandra for the back end but we basically from the beginning of 2010 to the end we got the tooling and the we got, we got the ELBs working got our production pipeline got Jenkins delivering code got all everything figured out so that from the beginning of 2010 we had the very first bits of the customer facing website on AWS by the end all of the customer facing website was there yeah. 2011 we moved the back end <laughs> system of record, the master copies out of Oracle and onto Cassandra on AWS for almost all the website. Still a few bits straggling on. Um, 2012 started open sourcing bits of it. 2013 um, I was running around trying to explain how all this open source stuff worked to people. Uh, and then in 2014 I left and joined Battery Ventures. So that's right. kind of my sort of path. I, dis I discovered that there was so much interest in this that I wanted a sort of a broader platform to go out and talk to yeah. people all around the world on, on about what, how to use this new technology. And we saw enterprises coming into cloud and all that kind of stuff. So that was two years ago when I when I left. But Cassandra Netflix. was open source. Yeah. For that wasn't it? Yeah. And the Cassandra's an were Apache you, project. Right. Who who was involved in creating that? Um, well, Cassandra was based on somebody reading the Amazon Dynamo paper. Yeah. And two people got together, and one of them worked at Amazon, and one of them worked at Google, uh, and they were both working at the time at Facebook. So yeah. a, a ex-Amazon and an ex-Google, Google Big Table is the data model, and Dynamo is the distribution model, and they got together at Facebook and built this thing, and then threw it over the wall as an open source project and sort of walked away from it. Yeah. And Facebook effectively walked away from it at the time. They didn't really have an ongoing support into it. Um, some people at uh, Rackspace picked it up and started using it, and then they basically adopted it and spun off and created what is now Datastax. Okay. So that's kind of the history there. Uh, when Netflix looked at it, we evaluated a whole bunch of different things at the end of 2010. Um, and Cassandra was the nearest thing, looked like the most plausible way forward. Uh, it wasn't exactly what we needed, but it looked like we could change it. So we ended up creating a couple of... Um, we ended up hiring and breeding some Apache committers for Cassandra at Netflix. Yeah. So we modified the code. Basically, if you run Cassandra on AWS now, you're using code that Netflix put in the system because we were the first big user of Cassandra on AWS. And there's a few things about AWS that, uh, that Cassandra needed to be changed to yeah. handle properly. And that... You know, we got that working and just rolled it out everywhere. So I think there's about of the order of ten thousand nodes of Cassandra running at, at Netflix now. Right. And then Apple has ten has a hundred thousand, more right. than a hundred thousand. 
So actually, the people that were the committers at Netflix now work for Apple. Right. <laughs> the Apple is being sort of a large sucking noise, sucking in any Cassandra talent they can possibly find because they're running over a hundred thousand nodes of it. And you know, if you think about running a billion users on iMessage or Siri or yeah, whatever, yeah. they have problems on a you know, order of magnitude larger scale than Netflix. Yeah. So we're actually quite happy that there's a bigger user driving it now. Yeah. And Netflix is just actually just ticking over they so use the off the shelf version. for a long time we ran the custom built version and then they run off the shelf version yeah. now. so maybe just to wrap out the, the Netflix mm-hmm. um, uh, story that so I mean how fundamentally different is the architecture now to what you'd put in place you know even back in 2010 I know there's been a few changes but the fundamentals of it and where do you expect it to I, go from, from here I think that the current Netflix architecture in many ways is still kind of built on AWS 2010. Right. 2010 was a lot of features came along, and um, they kind of locked themselves into a set of architectural decisions. There's more stuff come along recently in the last five years that Netflix has sort of used some bits and pieces of, but uh, is not very heavy users of. So DynamoDB, I think, is something that you'd use now yeah. if you're starting out. Um, at least up to some point. There's a point at which it probably makes sense to run large Cassandra clusters, but small Cassandra clusters is better. At some point, they doesn't scale down yeah. far enough to be effective. So I think there's there's things like that. Uh, there's Kinesis. Netflix has its own logging system. Some some cases, Netflix is just too big. Yeah. Uh, they have something like 70,000 instances running. Right. And you look at the total throughput of Kinesis for all of everybody on AWS, and you look at the how much Netflix is doing on its logging system, it's usually bigger. Right. At some point, actually, James Hamilton was talking about the total throughput of DynamoDB in US East, and I said, yeah, I think we have one Cassandra cluster doing more than that. Right. <laughs> um, so you have to be small enough to fit. Yeah. And in, in general, Netflix is small enough to fit on AWS, but these individual features sometimes don't scale far enough for the way currently Netflix is. Yeah. But if you're starting out now, you can grow with AWS, yeah. right? So you get in it, you do your things, and over the next year or two, as you grow out and get bigger and bigger, AWS will grow these features. But you know, there's occasion you're trying to fit a quart in a pint pot kind of problems. You don't ever want to be, you know, you want to be a small fish in a big pond when yeah. you're using a feature. You don't ever want to be a shark in a paddling pool. <laughs> That's my favorite analogy on that. Um, because that was what Netflix did with SimpleDB. I think we were that some ridiculous proportion of simple DB sure. usage at one point yeah. and it was like no this is not working we yeah. need we need to be on something where we're a small user and there's a lot of other users and we're not the dominant user of something yeah. and and the trick with AWS is they managed to grow fast enough to be always be big enough to run Netflix yeah um, and that's been the sort okay. of the key all right, so I want to talk about startups I mean, mm-hmm. I'm in the startup team so it's yeah. a, uh, it's a passion of mine you probably know enough people that AWS, that whatever sector they're in, they tend to to get a bit excited about. So, how did you get involved with uh, a, a VC firm, and, yeah. and and what's been the journey so far? Um, so, I had VCs calling me as a visible person that was using new technologies and saying, "What well, would you think of DataStack? Should we invest in them?" Um, DataStacks used me for customer references, App Dynamics, uh, the the tool, the vendors that Netflix was using. We would get calls about. And then other people that would like to have Netflix um, be customers would come by. and we'd ha- So I basically was sort of gathering. 
Well, one of my roles at Netflix was to be sort of outbound looking for the next technologies and trying to figure out what was going to happen, you know, who was interesting. Yeah. And so that meant that I was plugged into that world. So I got to know a whole bunch of VCs. And then they start, they have this sort of like interesting person lists with who they invite to their dinners and they have little conferences where they need speakers. So I did a few things like that. And after a while, I say two years ago, actually when I was in Australia two years ago, I was thinking, oh, there seems to be, there's a more stuff out there. I could have a bigger platform outside Netflix to sort of talk to all the enterprises that are moving to cloud than I would have if I'm just concerned about what Netflix needs out of that. Yeah. Right. So you said enterprise, not startup. So it was mostly enterprise. Enterprises consume what startups, you know, stuff from startups. So that's kind of the area I'm in, is like the enterprise space um, for startups selling into them. Okay. Right. So that, if that makes sense. Um, and I was looking at a whole bunch of options, and people have been sort of headhunting me for all the time anyway, but I started taking some of them seriously. And at some point, I called um, somebody I knew at one of the VC firms because I'd actually always wanted to get into VC, but I wasn't sure how how to get in or when or whatever. And they basically made it made it happen yeah. to get me into this VC firm, Battery Ventures, um, and to basically they were trying to figure out how to add more technology um, background into the firm. Um, so that they'd have a people would have a reason to talk to them, so that I act as sort of an attractor for interesting people that want to talk about Docker or yeah. AWS or whatever. Um, in, and so people come and talk to Battery rather than some other VC firm because they know me or they've heard or they've yeah. seen me at a conference or something. So I act as an external, visible PR attractor type person for yeah. the things we're interested in, and then. When you look at the portfolio companies, a lot of them are, you know, small SaaS companies growing to be big SaaS companies, and they have scalability problems, and then they have to fix their development processes to speed that up and go continuous delivery, and they have to move to cloud, or their Amazon bill got too big, and they're using a mess of random things, and they need to tidy it up. Uh, my, my sort of rule of thumb on that is that when your Amazon bill is the same size as your coffee bill, you don't care, right? <laughs> right. A lot of it takes a long time before your Amazon bill is bigger than your coffee bill for yeah. a startup. But when it gets to be an order of magnitude, well, a bit bigger than the cost of an engineer, yeah. you know, to tens of thousands of dollars a month, you go, you know, if I could halve that, I could hire another engineer. That's usually when people go in and do the cleanup. Yeah. Easily, you know, you figure out what you're using, you buy some reservations, you discover you've got lots of redshift instances yeah. or something expensive. You buy reservations for the expensive stuff. You order start order scaling and tidying up the things. You move stuff from old instance types like M1s to M3s and C3s. Yep. Easily half your bill, and you get enough money back to hire another engineer, and everyone's yep. happy. So that's a kind of common pattern I typically see. So that's that's basically it. And the some of it is more domain technology advice, like monitoring tools companies, like Vivid Cortex, who do a database monitoring yep. tool, have a weekly call with their CEO. Okay. A start, small startup, sort of early stage. Um, they're doing quite well now. Um, and uh, Big Panda is a monitoring event management tool that gathers events from everywhere. We just invested in them, so I'm working with them on helping develop their architecture and help then bring them to the attention of enterprises. And I spend a lot of time at conferences talking to techies 
and I do CIO summits and I just did a series of, so while I was in Australia I had sort of dinner organized by the AWS people yeah. with a whole bunch of executives basically. That was yesterday? Um, yeah, <coughs> did it yesterday in Sydney. I was busting to get a ticket to that, yeah. but there were too many customers wanted to go, so I yeah. had to So, th- so I'm kind of, I do the pincer movement on middle management yeah. where we get the CEOs <laughs> and CEOs and CTOs interested in, okay, this is how you move to cloud or you do whatever. Um, and then they do the bottom up for the engineers to explain how to do all of this stuff, and then the people in the middle that are resistant get sort of pin- squeezed out, and you right. can move, you can change. That's a pretty cool job. So, yeah. I mean, how, how, I mean, tell us a bit about Battery Ventures. I mean, because you, you know the VC firms here are just not of the scale that they can employ someone yeah. like you to to, to act in that role. Um, so, Battery's a thirty or so year old firm, started in the nineteen eighties in Boston. Um, early success they were a, a seed investor in Akamai okay. another Boston yeah. company they made a lot of money out of that um, they were they've been into you know, investments they've been in Marketo there's a whole oh, yeah, marketing and sales optimization people like that um, currently there's a lot of social media management tools so we're investors in Sprinkler okay. that uh, do if you're a big company and you want to manage your social online presence there's a they do that Enterprise space, Chef. We have we have a big stake and a board seat at Chef. Um, I mentioned a couple of the monitoring tools. We have a stake in Act Dynamics, a fairly small late stage investment there. We do late stage yeah. and seed. The, so how the big is range. the fund? I mean, you probably got multiple funds running, but what our sort tenth of fund, fund, which yeah. we're we're currently investing out of, is a nine hundred million dollar fund. Okay. Uh, we have ten GPs, so ten check writers. So it's so kind of size of VC firm by how many people write checks. Right. So, so general five, t- ten partners, yeah, um, and we have, I think, two in Israel, three in the Bay Area, and five in Boston, right, uh, and that's our not, not footprint. in Australia, no, no, not yet, not yet, no. <laughs> not so because you haven't done an Australian investment. No, the, the kind of thing we'd be interested in with Australia is a company based in Australia that's looking to move to the U.S. market and probably going to move headquarters over there. And we do that a lot from Israel. Right. So we have a really, we know that pattern and we know what it looks like because so a lot of the time you get little startups in Israel, the executives move to the Bay Area or Boston, engineering is still in Israel, and we, help, we know how to do that, like yeah. all, the pa- all the things you have to do as you scale and move the thing and all that. So I think we copy that pattern. Yeah. If we look, we've looked at investments in Australia and New Zealand I don't think we currently have any, yeah. but it's not off the, it's not off the books. But it's if you're, we'd want to have the executive team relatively close right. to our offices, where possible. We kind of don't really want to have to like, fly halfway around the world for a board meeting. It's so just, it's just too much have, overhead. You'd have turned down Atlassian if they'd come to you because they were pretty resistant. They wanted to stay here. Yeah. Yeah, Atlassian wouldn't fit. Our, I mean, it's great that Atlassian is is like, they announced their pricing on their IPO yesterday. Yeah, I saw, which is billion, awesome. Is right? Awesome, it's huge. Great and what company. that's going to do is is create a whole load of uh, you know nicely vested engineers and managers yeah. who are going to be the next generation, yeah. you know, seed capital, angel investors, yeah. whatever locally. Yeah, and that's why the Bay Area is such a thing. There are people yeah. recycling this money, yeah. right? So I think that that's an awesome thing. It'll turbocharge the Australian market, okay, and, so and it's going to be yeah. Let's talk about that. Cool. I mean, you've been here. Uh, you know, I think you've been wheeled around mostly in the, the big end of town. Probably not so much in the startup. I mean, but have you had time to 
you know, dig into the startup community, meet some of the VCs. What's what's your take on it at met, the moment? I haven't met the local VCs. I think there's some. I mean, the Yale conference that I've been at is a developer conference, okay. so there's a lot of startups involved there, and I can't remember all their names. But there's a, like there's a bunch of finance related startups here. So there's a company doing banking as a startup. There's somebody else who's doing sort of mortgage. Oh, there's a big trend stuff. around fintech here. I mean, yeah, so fintech is a big thing here, and I think it's a good thread to follow um, there's a lot of money in finance yeah. um, some of the companies you know, the banks make a lot of profit banks here. make money it's a relatively sheltered market to figure out your business model yeah. you can take it back to you, know, you can go global later so it's always important to get your business model figured out in a market before you go you take it it's one of the problems people sometimes do they go global too early yeah uh, and they are still iterating their business model and it gets just too confusing to, yeah. to keep doing that everywhere. Um, so, because you were yeah. here two years ago? Yeah. So, what's the difference or your obs- observable difference between the climate or the ecosystem two years ago and what you're seeing now? Um, not sure that I really was that plugged in at the time to just to, to really see. I think, I mean, talking to Atlassian two years ago as well but there's I think that that's probably the single biggest change going forward from now is was the effect there's going to be an Atlassian effect yeah that's going to be if you if it plays out correctly and, and plays out the way that you'd expect it to yeah that bringing that much um, uh, value into the local ecosystem and unlocking it with the IPO yeah means that um you know, there's there's likely to be startups and whatever that wouldn't have otherwise happened yeah. um, locally, and it's a great example to follow. So it's not just the financial side; it's the advice yeah. uh, and the pattern following. I know how to do this. I did it yeah. before. This is what it looks like. I can, you know, it's all of that sort of the Bay Area. You you bump into anybody and they'll give you advice on how to do a startup because yeah. they've all done it. It's it's so pervasive in the culture that. Yeah, you know, I, I come in on a Monday and they, everyone's talking about you know the kids' birthday party and how they were talking to another board member at this startup that they're at you know, over you know during the kids' birthday party and that's their normal life, yeah, right? Yeah. You can't we don't go quite to have anything. That, yeah. yeah, I think so, it's coming. You know, yeah. and I often talk about the macro effects <laughs> which apply the world over and the micro ones which which we touched yeah. on. So in the macro side, you got faster, better, cheaper internet. You've got yeah. cloud computing. Uh, you've got better funding environment. You've got talent now. No longer yeah. there's no jobs. Well, there's in no, there's, there's always been talent in, in, in Australia, and I think you have got a lot of talent. Um, the Our Conference, you know, roughly 600 people in Melbourne, Brisbane, and Sydney. And, and they're all developers, weren't they? That's a de- well, yeah, they're primarily developers. Um, deep technical content. Yeah. And a slightly different feel in each city, but basically, yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, deep technical talent here. Yeah. Um, Two years ago, I did a Netflix architecture tutorial for two days, I think, um, along with one of the other Netflix engineers. And somebody came up to me today and said, we went, visited that tutorial, went back, fixed his startup, you know, you know, re-architected the way they did everything, and now he's off to the races and is having a good time. Yeah. So, you know, you can come in and drop some ideas in and come back again and find that people are using them. So that's really gratifying. Yeah. So I think it's been... The information spreads, and the other thing is, open source lets everybody go to GitHub and download anything, and that's the way most the best technology you can get now is open source, and most of it's on GitHub. 
So you don't have to go and That's sort of beg, beg Oracle and give them millions of dollars for the latest thing to be at the leading edge of technology anymore yeah. or you know, go to a big enterprise vendor because the products you can get for free with support from some startup are actually better products because they're, being, they're evolving with a much larger community and they are, you know, and the, the, so there's a, the, the friction of getting something done. I mean, Docker, I mentioned Docker a few times. The, the rate at which Docker got adopted was totally unprecedented. Yeah. If you, any of the metrics on Docker's growth, yeah, it's sort of a thousand percent ish. It's somewhere in that range. Depends what you're measuring, but they're sort of year on year, they're 10x. Wow. Whatever they were doing. Um, they're doing more downloads from Docker Hub every day now than they did in the first six months of having Docker Hub. Yeah. So that's a, whatever that, that's like a 200x yeah. over average. So there's, there's, there's some, and that's largely because it was easy to download, low friction, it solved the problem, and then they managed to sort of get everyone to adopt it yeah. and, and, and pile on. So people are looking at that, so how can we do, what's the next one of those? How do we do something like that? Yeah. All right, we're, we're kind of running out of time, so I just want to throw in one last crystal ball question I mean if you mm -hmm. extrapolate out I mean it's tough to put numbers in these things but even five years so out to 2020 what does the environment look like what's what's happening with AWS what's yeah. you know where do you see the world going I, I get that question enough times that I've actually come up with a couple of answers <laughs> <laughs> so I'll give you the ones I usually give but um, discuss it a bit there's a couple of things one is if you look at the trend in security and compliance uh, Netflix has just about figured out how to get all of its PCI credit card operations on AWS, on Cassandra, with an auditable system, um, and other people are still saying that's impossible, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, okay, so the existence proof is there, and when you go to do the audit on it, it's a, a system of compensating controls, you're using CloudTrail, you're using the ability to see the exact state something's in and how it got there as a compliance tool yeah. rather than having <coughs> one week a year when the auditors are coming in, you make everything look extra shiny and you can put your big stack of documents and they tick box their way through the interviews, right? Yeah. So instead of that tick box and interview compliance process, this is a continuous compliance model, which is you can sort of prove the system has always been in a good state. Training auditors in how to do that is the current problem. It's not that you can't do it, it's that the auditors don't know that that's, that that's possible. Yeah. So I think that in five years' time, that will be the only way you can get audited. So my trend sort of thing is that if you're still in your data center and you're running a, uh, a secure credit card, whatever, you'll, you'll be crazy, you won't be able to pass audit. Right. Yeah, they'll throw you out because they can't, you can't prove your data center's in a certain state. You can't prove the history of how it got there because um, it's too hard to do that. You've got a mosquito on your head there. Oh, now I'm getting eaten alive here. <laughs> yeah, I hope I'm not. Um, anyway, so, so that's one sort of thing. And it's just a trend, just following the trend to the logical conclusion there and sort of worrying a few people maybe. Okay. Um, another one I like is the serverless computing. AWS Lambda yeah. is a big deal. Um, somebody I was talking to said they had this little website and it was costing a few hundred dollars a month to run. They rewrote it in Lambda. It's now costing less than a dollar a month to run. Wow. Because it just, it wasn't generating that much traffic. You sure it's a mosquito? Yeah. It's the size um, of a small dog. Yeah. <laughs> Getting hassled here. 
Um, so that's that's another one. And the other thing I like particularly is the large memory stuff. So um, the X1 instance type that was announced for next year, more than two terabytes in a AWS instance available by the hour. I think that's a game changer. You'll be able to yeah, people building open source projects and random developers going, I wonder if this works on two terabytes. What happens? You yeah. grab one for a few hours, even even if it's quite expensive by the hour. You can get one for a few hours, prove something out, test out a, a hypothesis, build an algorithm that will work in the multi-terabyte space. Whereas right now, if you want to play with something in the multi-terabyte space, you have to be in-house at a big company with a big data center and beg for it for a long time yeah. to get access to it for a bit. And it's busy doing something else. You can't yeah. justify it. So I think that that unlocks a whole class of massively, massive in-memory applications, things like um, huge graph databases and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. A, a graph databases are very hard to partition. I oh, got it. Good. Yeah, there you go. All right. There's no blood in it either, right? Sorry. <laughs> Back with you. Um, so that's interesting. There's a bunch of other people looking at that kind of technology. So you're going to see non-volatile huge main memory systems. So over the next few years, tens of terabytes of non-volatile memory is what your main memory is going to look like and you don't want to run a Java garbage collect on that. You'll, go, you'll be waiting a long time for it to finish. Yeah. Right, so you want to build what is the programming model, what is the algorithms, what are the use cases. Yep. So I think those are the sort of three things I think that are, are currently kind of hold up as few years out that's where that's where it's going so I call those terra services yeah. so overall, moving from you know, microservices to terra services gotcha. but you know in terms of startups um, disrupting markets and making money and creating value yeah. the trend I think is going to continue or the trend is if you see some on-premise you know package solution look for the SaaS provider that does that and right. if you don't see one start one because these, go. once you get a SaaS version of an on-prem product, it will iterate so much faster. It will get eventually. You, you see Workday getting to be a better product than SAP. Yeah. If it isn't already, it will be quickly. Yeah. Because of they've got this SaaS model and they're iterating. Yeah. And SAP is trying to figure out how to get to a SaaS model that they're kind of too encumbered with their current stuff, and you know they'll get there. But in the meantime the sort of new breed is like you know the dinosaurs are, have little mammals running around and the yeah. SaaS products are the mammals and they're much more agile and you're seeing everything in enterprise and everything around the world moving to SaaS yeah. and that's where most of the value is I mean the SaaS market is already much bigger than the infrastructure as a service market you know if you look at Amazon's revenue yeah. AWS revenue it's a tiny fraction of the SaaS revenue that runs on AWS I think you'll see everyone moving into that. You're seeing AWS moving up market with more SaaS-like products. You'll see everybody moving into that space. Okay. And that's a, just a very, very general trend. It's an easy one to go look for. Um, well, you can, you re can take... Reassuring. Yeah, and the other thing we saw you know, from reInvent, people shutting down whole data centers, and you take a data center. If you shut it down, what do you do? Maybe a couple of things. You move into another data center. Um, most of it, you move out to SaaS providers. And what's left, you stick in an Amazon account. Yeah. And you just keep, every time a data center comes to end of lease, you know, you go, instead of re renewing the lease, you shuffle it off to cloud and SaaS providers. And that's going, that's the trend we're seeing. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll maybe call it a day there. So it's great having someone like you in town. Uh, Adrian, and thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, I know you've got a conference on today and a few other things, but, yeah, thank you. you know, at least we get to sit down by the beach and get eaten by mosquitoes. So, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. Well, thanks, thanks very much. Uh, pleasure. Yeah. Cheers.